you weren't with us last week, boy, did you miss out, because we began an exploration of the book of the Bible that it's among many people's personal favorites. <laughs> Leviticus. Yes. Uh, no, as I said last week, Leviticus is one of those books that a lot of uh, believers tend to skim through casually or just worse, avoid altogether. And, and, and yet it's a very important book because it's in this book that God instructs Moses what it means to be in relationship with him. And as I said last week, which kind of frames this whole series, if you weren't with us, the foundational premise is that worshiping, worshiping the Lord, worship, isn't just a part of our lives. Worship is what our lives are supposed to be about. Like the Israelites, we are on a journey to the promised land, the way of the kingdom. Like the Israelites, we are children of the covenant who are trying to figure out how to live in complete dependence upon God as our father. Still. If you did, as I asked you to, look through Leviticus, if you haven't looked at it all, at all or in a while, the particulars <laughs> outlined chapter after chapter are graphic. They're multi-sensory. And as I've said, they're messy. It's easy to get lost in all the details. You're not going to be the first person to find yourself overwhelmed by all the repeated prescriptions regarding blood, guts, and fat. But... As I said last week, if we listen for the truth in each chapter, if we look for the patterns, if we don't get hung up on all the details and don't get put off by the prominence of blood, Leviticus offers us a vibrant and living vocabulary for expressing our life as worship to the Lord. Last Sunday, our focal word, our word of the day was offering. The whole idea was life as worship means offering our lives to God, and we explored what that looks like. This morning, as we continue to investigate sort of the overview of the first seven chapters of Leviticus, our, our new word will be, if I can admit it, a dirty word. I'm going to say a dirty word in church. I'm going to say a dirty word in church and a dirty word outside of church. I'm going to say the S word. That's right. I'm going to say it. Sin. It's a dirty word out there. It's a dirty word out there because it's a label that we often apply unto others. To separate their practices or their way of life from ours. Oh, you're living in sin. Those are the sinners over there. It's a dirty word in here, inside the church, because interestingly, as a descriptor, it never seems to stick to us. Pull your average Christian and sinner or sin is not their top descriptor for themselves. That is not how they like to classify themselves. Attaching this word, in fact, common logic right now in churches is for your new believers who are coming into the church, you don't want to start, start throwing around the word sin or sinner because that's not really helpful to church growth. It's not very attractive. And even among committed Christians, let's be honest, this is still an off-putting and offensive word to many of us. Many of us cringe when we hear the word sin in church or sinner because, and if, as, if I push you, what I've gotten is, well, after all, that's why we're here. That's what we left behind, you know, so we didn't have to deal with that. Why do you keep bringing up sin? sin you know, the, the place that I've shared this before where this comes up is during the prayer of confession oftentimes. And it's not just at Grace, but at other churches where people have pulled me aside and said, why do we have this prayer of confession? You know, we've been covered by Christ. Where's our lack of confidence in what Jesus has done? Why are we praying this? And, or this thing of, well, you know what? I ain't praying that prayer because I've been forgiven. I don't need to confess my sins. Jesus covered all that. That's just showing that I don't believe in grace. And I can't say to you enough... <laughs> What a misunderstanding that is of why we need to confess. And I think that what we're going to see in Leviticus today is going to help us to understand sin is a problem for us. It's controversial, yes, it's contentious now, but it was controversial and contentious back then. 
What's ironic, though, is the reasons why it was controversial and contentious then are different than they are now. Now, sin is controversial because, as I've said, it's a kind of a forgotten word. Sin is controversial because it's a divisive word. It's so offensive to so many, both inside and outside the church. It's a, a controversial, contentious word because it's elusive. If you actually get people to talk about sin, what you'll get them to debate is what exactly defines what sin is. But back then, sin was controversial because it was ingrained into the everyday life of the individual. People were very aware of the fact that sin permeated their lives. It was a contentious word because it didn't, and it didn't, but it didn't divide people. It united them in their awareness of this understanding of wrong, right and wrong. And the centrality of sin defined the necessity of worship as the life of the community. And that's what I hope we're going to see as we hear again from excerpts from chapters 1 through 7. Our elder Linda Woodbury is going to come up and just read a little bit from two different chapters. Again, try to not get thrown off by the, the stuff that's weird to us. And just listen in and then we'll keep your Bibles open and we'll dive in. Continuing our reading through the book of Leviticus, as uh, Pastor Chris said. So if you're following along in your pew Bible, it will be on page 71. We're looking at Leviticus 4, verses 13 and 15, through 15, and then chapter 5, 17 through 19. So again, page 71 in the pew Bible. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realize their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord, and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. And continuing in chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though they do not know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. They are to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them, for the wrong they have committed unintentionally, and they will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. They have been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Linda. Again, it's not the most exciting thing to read. But one of the things I hope you noticed, and I really want to encourage you to keep your Bible open, and there's so much to say, that, and we're not going to be able to say everything, but one of the things I want you to see here, and we saw it last week, <clears throat> is the whole framework of worship expressed in Leviticus is built out of the presumption of a need. When you read through Leviticus, part of why we get lost in it is, is what's explicit is the proper preparation, the what and the how of what the people are to do. But what you might also notice if you read between the lines is the function and meaning of the sacrifices, the why, is assumed. It's understood by the community. 
And again, so there's this presumption of a need. In the last week, it was when any of you brings an offering, the assumption that an offering needs to be brought, the assumption of a need here, if anyone sins, there's this understanding that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be, that our lives are not the way they're supposed to be, that our communities are not the way they're supposed to be. So there's this presumption of a need because of the state of brokenness, that we need something, we're lacking something, we're missing something. And what takes away from us, what creates that gap is sin. Let's stop for a second and talk about that. Like I said, it, the, I think it's very debatable what sin is. That's like if we get into a conversation, that's where people sort of go back and forth. And I think we have to kind of understand the biblical definition of sin before we can get back to Leviticus. It comes out of Leviticus, but other places. But let's talk a little bit about what is sin. The nuance of the Greek word in the Bible for sin that's used in the New Testament carries this idea of missing the mark or missing the target. But sin is biblically more than the things we do or the things that we don't do. In the Hebrew, it actually fleshes this out even more. Sin is about a mindset. Sin is about a disposition. Sin is an orientation. Sin is, if you want it to kind of snapshot, sin is living apart. It's living in opposition to. It's living in independence from. It's living in separation from our Father's will. So to unpack this even further for you, just to really appreciate the fullness of this, sin is when we love, when we trust, when we fear, when we adore, when we rely on, when we hope in, when we long for something more than our Father, than God, than Jesus. Another way of saying this is to understand that we never break the second commandment without first breaking the first great commandment. Jesus was once asked to summarize the law, and we know it as the great commandment. How do you summarize the law? And Jesus said it's summarized like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said the second is as great as the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. To understand what sin is, you cannot, if you don't love your neighbor, you've already violated the first commandment. You can't not love your neighbor and not at the same time, and still love God at the same, at the same time. This draws out the, the tension there. Now, I think for most of us, we're probably, you know, none of this is surprising. In fact, when I've had conversations with people about sin, if we can talk about that dirty word, we tend to frame sin when we talk about it. We all kind of collectively agree that sin has to do with our intentional, deliberate, willful, knowing acts of defiance or rebellion against God. Get a group of people together, Christians especially, lying, stealing, murder, adultery, not going to have a lot of debate that that's sin. You know, that's wrong. And while we will all agree that sin is this intentional, willful wrongdoing, what's ironic to me when I get in conversations, and this is inside the church as well as outside, I want to make this clear, is that, is, that, is that people will sort of allow for this understanding that sin exists, but then they will immediately in the same sentence say something like this. Maybe you've said this before. So sin is out here. Yes, I acknowledge this willful, knowing, purposeful rebellion or disobedience against God. But then I'll say, you know, but I'm basically a good person. I'm basically a good person. And I want to stop here if you've ever said this or heard this said, because this is really important we get, get past this one. What you're saying when you're saying I'm basically a good person, let me translate that if I'm saying it, and I've said it before, is, well, I'm basically honest. You know, I'm basically responsible. I'm basically a peaceful person. I'm basically safe. Next time someone says that to you or you find yourself saying that, ask this, okay? So when exactly are you specifically lying? When are you specifically irresponsible? When are you specifically violent? When are you specifically dangerous? 
This idea of, well, I'm basically a good person. How many of you, if someone said that to you, would go, oh, I'll spend some time with you? You know, I'm basically a safe person. I might not be today, but basically I am. I'm basically a pretty, you know, it's pretty, uh, you know, truthful person, but, you know, it's, but today might be my specifically day to lie to you. I mean, we wouldn't, we would kind of have a little bit of pause there, basically a good person. But what's behind this, and this is what's significant for what we're looking at this morning, is I think what's behind this idea of saying, well, I'm basically a good person. Yes, this is sin, these, these things that take place that are willful, wrong, knowing things that we do against God and against each other, but I'm basically a good person. What we're saying, what we're trying to express is, well, I don't intentionally or purposefully do bad stuff. I don't try to rip anybody off. I don't try to take advantage of anybody. I'm not out there murdering people. I'm not, you know, intentionally doing anything wrong. I'm not trying to do bad stuff. But if you listened, as Linda read, if you were paying attention, if your Bible's still open, Leviticus is kind of shocking because right out of the gate when Leviticus wants to define sin, the first place it goes is not talking about what we're talking about. Leviticus wants to say that sin can be and is unintentional. We often think, if we can agree about it at all, that sin has to do with our conscious choice as only being related to something that we knowingly or intentionally do wrong. But Leviticus, in its first few chapters, doesn't even go there. Leviticus, right out of the gate, doesn't address willful or defiant sins, but it, it addresses and defines as sin, as wrong, those things that are done in ignorance of the law. In the verb and noun forms, sin denotes not what we do intentionally or purposefully. Sin is categorized as those things we do, those aspects of our orientation to God and each other that are unintentional, that are inadvertent. God our Father declares to us that sin, in other words, encompasses our errors and our mistakes in life. The things that we did that we didn't mean to do or may not even have been, have been aware that we did in the first place. Leviticus says these actions, these orientations are still our responsibility. In other words, beloved, sin is sin whether you know it or not. Bless you. And in case we, we struggle with this, and I hope you are because I'm struggling with this. This is not very comfortable for me. I hope I'm not alone up here. Leviticus in these chapters, what we didn't read, gives a whole, whole host of categories, examples to show the kind of mistakes that we make. Some of some of, uh, some of you in this room are, are biblical scholars. That's always on my mind, the people who are really well-versed in the Bible. I try not to look at you because I can see you already going, aha, but. And some of you who are biblical scholars know a little bit about Leviticus, and you go, yeah, but some of these examples that are given here, a lot of them, Pastor Chris, don't they have to do with what's known as ceremonial uncleanliness? And, and to help you out here, there are things in Leviticus back then, things that are listed as unintentional sins might be unknowingly touching a dead body or accidentally eating something that you weren't supposed to, but then later found out about it. It wasn't on purpose, Leviticus said, but according to God, you're still responsible. Now, if you're, if you're a biblical scholar, you know many of these sanitary laws, these laws served a sanitary purpose, and now we live in the age of the Food and Drug Administration and refrigerators and stuff, so these, we don't need these, to worry about these things anymore. And in fact, if you really know your Bible, you know that Christ abolished these ceremonial laws, saying, you know, these things, we don't have to fret about them anymore. So if anybody here is afraid that when you leave that you might touch someone's car that ran over a dead body and that's going to mess up your relationship with God and with each other, don't worry, you're okay. But beyond that little bit of humor, even here, the broader principle of Leviticus still applies. 
We do well if we have a little bit of knowledge not to let it become a dangerous thing. And what I mean is the broader principle of Leviticus, this idea that coming in contact with unclean things, on the unclean things of this world can defile you even when you don't realize it. So we're not worried about dead bodies being run over or food that might not be sanitary. Uh, we, don't, you know, we don't have to stress about that. But this idea of being defiled by things that are unclean very much speaks into the world in which we live. Because more and more we live in a world and we actually either don't talk about it or, or kind of be, you know, thump our chests about it. We live in a world where we are exposing ourselves more and more and being complacent more and more about things that are not good for us. I'm going to go to the stereotypical place, but it's true. The, pro pro the pro profoundness of violence, what we are willing to watch to see, the, ex the, the expansion of what, of, of, of what defines safe, healthy sex from cheating, what defines cheating and what doesn't, what defines... There's a whole host of things that we have continued to, to allow ourselves to be exposed to, an unclean understanding, and as a result, we become more complacent. And this is the Leviticus principle. The more that we expose ourselves and, and, and engage in things that are not good for us, what happens is it lowers our aversion. We all of a sudden go, well, maybe it's not such a big deal. We lessen our sensibilities. We dull our sensibilities in terms of our boundaries. And the next thing you know, we just kind of go, oh, it's not that bad. Beloved, I mean, I'm not saying anything that any of you don't know. There are a preponderance of addictions that exist in our society today. And beyond the ones that we corporately acknowledge, there are a whole host of others. There are actually shows that you can watch about people who are addicted to freaky stuff. And what is behind all of that is our corporate negligence, our collective denial of the fact that there's boundaries that we shouldn't cross and we've allowed those boundaries to get crossed and those are the results of the, the result of that are the addictions the rampant addictions that happen the fact that we live in a very addictive society where you can become addicted to almost anything this gets back to Leviticus but if this is pushing you there are other examples given here of unintentional sin that go beyond dead bodies and unclean food sometimes Leviticus says we sin out of ignorance we may not even know what it is. We may not even know what we've done. Let me give you a quick example. And again, this is going to be an uncomfortable sermon. So if you're already feeling uncomfortable, it's not going to get any better. I'm just saying. Well, it'll get better at the end, but it's not going to be better for a couple minutes. How many of us go to the store? We all go to the store. Grocery store, department store. How many of us go to the store? And how many of us actually think about one, let alone any of the products that we buy? How many of us, when we go to the store, stop and think? And even if we stopped to think, how many of us honestly have any idea where it came from? Who made it? What materials were used? What the byproducts are in making it? To whom is our money going? And any of the other links in the chain that bring that product to the shelf for us to buy. We don't think about it. And right now, many of you are like, I don't want to think about it. I just want to go get my can of peas. I just want to go buy my blouse. But Leviticus says, we are responsible if that product, that company we are supporting is dumping toxic waste exploiting sweatshop labor. We are responsible, it's sin, if they're using unfair practices to put the competition out of business. We are responsible even if we didn't know any better. Sin can sometimes be because of our ignorance. Sometimes Leviticus says we sin because of an oversight or a distraction. Leviticus gives the example, it's just a simplistic example, of the person who promises to do something for their neighbor and then fails to follow through on that promise for whatever reason. None of us can relate to that, right? I mean, we do this all the time. I'll call you tomorrow, okay? I'll see you next week, okay? I'll take care of it. Don't worry, I got it. And then, oh, the distraction. Oh, the, the oversight. I forgot. 
I lost track of time. I'm so, something else came up. I meant to follow through on it. But you know, you know, Leviticus says this is sin. Sometimes we sin because of a moment of weakness. Just a moment of weakness. Sometimes Leviticus gives the example of uh, the eyewitness to injustice who keeps his mouth shut when he should have spoken up. Beloved, how many times have we unconsciously or inadvertently, I'm not talking thinking it through, unconsciously or inadvertently turned a blind eye, looked the other way, remained silent because maybe just in that fraction of a second we said, well, that's just not my business. I shouldn't get involved. Leviticus declares that isolating oneself, not getting involved, even if we don't consciously think it through, is not loving your neighbor, and therefore, it's sin. And then, Leviticus acknowledges that sometimes stuff just happens. It's not Leviticus, but it's in Deuteronomy that gives this bizarre example of where two people are cutting wood. They're cutting wood, and the axe head flies off the handle and kills one of them. No one intended it, but somebody's dead. And the other person's responsible. Now, I don't think many of us are chopping wood together and worrying about axe heads, but sometimes stuff just happens. We go out together to dinner or lunch afterwards, maybe after church, we're at a party, we're together, and I'm just joking around with you. I'm just joking around with you. I'm joking around and I'm teasing and in jest, but it really hurts you. It hurts your feelings. It strikes a chord. It messes you up for that day, for that week, and even if I didn't mean it, even if I didn't know about it, even if I had no idea, Leviticus says, you're responsible. It gets worse. Because sin, according to Leviticus, is not just things that are unintentional. Sin, contrary to what we often think, act, and believe, sin is not a private or individual matter. You heard that in what Linda read as well. Don't know if you caught it. We're not only responsible, according to God, for the unintentional actions that we take against God or others. Hear this. We are also responsible for the unintentional consequences and effects of the actions taken by those in our community. In other words, the consequences of sin are not isolated to the individual. They're communal. We live in a world where we basically like to go, well, that's your stuff. That's not my stuff. Don't talk to me about my sin. You, talk to, you just worry about your own sin because I know if we compared notes, your sin's worse than my sin. So I got enough stuff to take care of. So you just worry about your stuff and I'll worry about mine. And Leviticus says, their stuff is your stuff. Your stuff is their stuff. I'm really bumming out right now because I got a lot of stuff to carry on my own. I don't need to carry all your people's stuff, Okay. I don't need all your baggage, and I'm sure you don't need mine, but Leviticus says we're in this together. Leviticus, in, in fact, if you, if you go through those chapters from four to seven, it identifies four different groups of people, the anointed priests, the whole congregation of Israel, all the leaders of Israel, and then it looks at individuals, the common person. And in all four cases, don't miss this, the implications are the same. The sins of the anointed priest or any leader brings guilt on the rest of the people. The sin of the whole community results in shame that is shared by all, every per person who's a part of that community. And there, the reverse is also true. Any member of that community, if they sin unintentionally and do what is forbidden by the Lord, that not only is that person guilty, the whole neighborhood is implicated. This is huge because we often, if we talk about sin at all, like I said, we often think about sin being the action of one person. But Leviticus shows us that a whole system or community is still our responsibility. So back then, the sin of a community, one of the examples that Leviticus gives is that if all of a sudden within the community there's this ox that's goring people to death. Or there's an example of one of the priests taking a little bit on the side. 
We live in a world where we're like, you know what, that's your ox, that's your responsibility. We live in a world where we say, well, that priest needs to be dealt with. Leviticus says yes, but Leviticus also says these are not, from God's viewpoint, private matters. They're not just about the choice of one individual. It's the sin of the whole community. The whole community is responsible for it. Even the people, and this is going to tick you off, even the people who had no idea about the ox or no idea that the priest was taking a little bit on the side. I hope some of you are annoyed right now. I hope some of you are like, this is not right. But Leviticus wants to say in the midst of our protesting that the life, the character, and the behavior of those around us impinge upon you and me, and vice versa. Your life, your character, and your behavior affect the people around you. This is so outside of how we think. This is so outside how we act. And if we're honest, I mean, let's be real today. So outside how many of us truly believe things work. I mean, seriously, when's the last time, how, when's, when's the last time you saw communal repentance, let alone individual repentance? It's astounding if you read through chapters 4 and 6 to see the range of sins that are mentioned, unintentional, and the corporate responsibility that's linked to them. We live in a world where it's exactly the opposite. We look around and we see organizations and communities and families and individuals who try to cover up their guilt rather than admit it publicly. And how often are we unknowingly a part of that cover-up? Let me give you another example. And again, it's not going to be comfortable. What about the example of a company I work for? It's my job. It's where I work. And I work for a company, and that company one day decides to cut corners in order to sell an unsafe product, to build a house unsafely, build a car unsafely, pr produce a can of peas unsafely, whatever. Think about that broader picture, okay? The workers are in the plant are just following orders. They're just doing what they're told. The management is just doing what the CEO wants, okay? The CEO is just trying to generate profit for the shareholders. And the shareholders just want to return on the investment. And here I am sitting in my office, in my cubicle, with no say in the matter and no power to do anything about it. But according to Leviticus, I am still responsible. Because at the end of the day, not only do I benefit from it, meaning I take a check, a paycheck from this company that cuts corners, it's not just about the money, I'm responsible because I'm a part of that community. I have a job there. <laughs> if you think this is hard to hear, you should try to preach this sermon. <laughs> because whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not, Leviticus says sin is communal. And, and, and I, I think, why is this so hard for me? Why is this so hard for us? And I'll tell you one of the reasons, and it's not, I think, by coincidence that we're about to celebrate July 4th. Amen for Independence Day. Amen for the freedoms of this nation. Many things to celebrate, celebrate about being an American. But there is a darker side to our story. We have gotten drunk in our history on the idea that freedom means we can do whatever the heck we want. That it's my God-given right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if it affects me and doesn't affect you, that I get to do it. This is hard for us to hear because we are so individualistic in this country. We struggle with this idea, this idea that I get, what you do has nothing to do with me. That's your business, not my business. That's private. Leviticus says, and not just Leviticus, the whole Bible, that in community we are accountable to each other. That our lives, our behaviors, your actions, your choices have a corporate effect. They're not isolated. We're not isolated from each other. These things are way more interconnected and bleed over than we want to admit. And part of the reason why we don't often go here is because we've been, we, we, what we do is we believe a, a, different, a different understanding, a different philosophy. We believe this philosophy. Ignorance is bliss. Come on, you know. Ignorance is bliss, right? 
Leviticus also says when it comes to sin, ignorance isn't bliss. We don't like to think about sin like this. What's interesting to me is that most of us, I think if we had a side conversation, most of us, especially in America, we believe, right? We understand the law that when it comes to a crime, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, right? Ignorance of the law is not an excuse when it comes to the, the rules of the government. But what, it's interesting, while we all acknowledge that, when we start to talk about matters of faith, ethics, and morality, we increasingly live in a world where we don't operate by the same standard. In our faith and in our ethics and in our morality, we increasingly live in a world where good intentions seem to trump everything else. Our knee-jerk reaction at first when something goes wrong or something bad happens is often for us to feel bad, but then all of us, myself included, we all mitigate that bad feeling. We all mitigate our responsibility through rationalization. Anybody good at rationalization here? Well, you know, I, I meant well. I meant well. I meant well. I, well, you know, I didn't mean for anything to go wrong. And so if I meant well, and if I didn't mean for anything to go wrong, then actually what that means is what I did wasn't wrong. It's your problem. I mean, if it was an accident, if it was unintentional, then it's really not my fault. And, and, and truth be told, it's no big deal. It's your deal. It's not my deal. But Leviticus declares powerfully, every sin is a big deal. Le Leviticus declares, and boy, do we need to hear this in a world where, where we live in this slippery slope that says, you know what I how I decide what's right and wrong? I decide what's right and wrong for me. Leviticus declares that there is a righteousness woven into the fabric of the universe that is not relative to our preferences and our choices. There's a righteousness woven into the fabric of the universe that has nothing to do with what you prefer or I prefer or what I choose or what you choose. And how do you know the violations of that moral fabric? Leviticus calls it out. The violations of the moral fabric of the universe, God's handiwork, are evident in their effects. When we see lives ripped apart, when we see communities torn apart, that's an indication that something is wrong whether we agree or not, whether we define it as being wrong or not. Right and wrong, Leviticus declares, are not subjective from God's perspective. The things that we do wrong by mistake or accident are still wrong. Another way to put this, beloved, is to call something an accident doesn't get you off the hook. Making excuses, and we live in a world where we all have an excuse, we all got a reason, we all got something to say, we all got to have the last word, but Leviticus says making excuses is not the same thing as making amends. We like to rationalize. We all are good at it. Do you ever think about this? Rationaliz rationalizing is basically trying to apply logic, trying to logically work things out. Here's the pr I'm, I'm a big fan of logic, but logic is limited. Here's why. How do you apply logic to a broken system? Logic implies that everything is operating the way that it should. But if the fundamental premise is things are broken, there are limits to how far logic can go. You with me? Another way to put this is rationalization, when we live in this world of rationalization is the answer, rationalization is very self-centered. Rationalization is all me figuring about how I can make it work. And, the, and Leviticus has nothing to do with rationalization. God doesn't encourage us to rationalize. Leviticus and the rest of the Bible says what we need is reconciliation. Rationalization is self-centered. Reconciliation is focused on the other person. How do, how, do, how do we make this right? How do we fix this? How do we, what, how do we get this back? And again, this is a hard word for us because we have grown up, many of us, we are teaching our children. We live in a society where we are taught and we have internalized this idea that guilt and shame are bad. 
You know your problem? Your problem is lack of self-confidence. That's what your problem is. You have too much guilt and shame in your life. You need to get rid of your guilt and your shame, and that'll be healthier for you. We live in a world that says guilt and shame are bad. The wrong kinds of guilt and shame are bad, but guilt and shame aren't bad. They're God-given. We're taught to believe, to show you how true this is, that we shy away from guilt and shame. We think it's unhealthy. We're taught to believe, and many of us do this practically every day of our lives. We're taught to believe that if something goes wrong and we're not aware of it and only become so later, or if someone does something wrong to us and they don't know about it and they find out about it later, it's just better to let it go. Just forget about it. Beloved, there are things in our lives, in our communities, where we take the default position right now. I'm talking in your life right now. You know what they are, where the default position is just to pretend it didn't happen. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. We're not talking about it. We all are just going to agree not to bring this up again, okay? Let's all just to agree to forget that this happened. We're all agreeing. We've agreed to forget. Why are you bringing this up again? We agreed this didn't happen. And the logic is we don't talk about this, we'll forget about it because we tell ourselves that if we don't talk about it, if we forget it, if we ignore it, it eventually will go away. The pain will go away. People will get over it. The consequences will lessen with time. Just if we just stop thinking about it, we don't talk about it, we don't bring it up, we forget it, it'll go away. But Leviticus... Leviticus says, and we need to hear this, ignorance is not bliss. Leviticus says exactly the opposite. Leviticus, I said, has this presumption of a need, and what's behind this presumption of a need is this need to get right with God and with each other. Something is wrong. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And the various case examples, some of which I highlighted to you, what they do besides giving specifics is they underscore the longer that sin is unresolved, the longer that wrongs are ignored, the longer that responsibility is not owned, the deeper and more severe the penetration, the contamination, the consequences of the pain, not just in terms of the people that we love, but the communities that we're a part of. Beloved, I'm not asking you to answer this out loud, but you have to, I want you to go to this place right now, and I'm, I'm pushing you. How many of us today, here, how many of us are haunted, crippled even by secret sins? Wrongs done by us, wrongs done to us, things that we don't talk about, things that we've tried to forget, things that we just don't bring up, things that we just stuff into the closet and we know where that closet is and we do not open that door or that we bury in our backyard and we know where that spot is and the only time we go out there if there's something else we got to put in the ground. In our marriages, in our families, with our children, in our friendship, friendships, how easily do those little, but I didn't mean to. That's not what, it's not my fault become serious burrs in our relationships, festering and unattended to, digging deeper until they bring about serious breaches that need desperately to be healed. I am blessed, and I mean that, to be able to do marital counseling. And when couples come in for marital counseling, one thing I can tell you that is universal across the board is when they sit down and they talk to me, what they think is the problem is often not the problem at all. It's not the problem at all. And it actually goes back to something that on the surface seems very, very simplistic, very, very, very manageable. But because it's been buried, because it's never been dealt with, because it's never been acknowledged or recognized, it's festered, it's deeper, and you have this toxic, pervasive cancer that's a much, much bigger work to do. Yet on the surface of it, it wasn't that big a deal. But it just wasn't owned. It just wasn't dealt with. Beloved, this is true in our lives. That Leviticus is, is, is pointing us to this contamination and the consequences. 
But you're here today and you don't want to hear about sin. If you knew that this was the Sin Sunday, you'd come next week. <laughs> you want to hear the part of the gospel that deals with love, right? Man, Sin Sunday, this sucks. Love Sunday. Let's have Love Sunday. I'm kidding, but I'm also serious. We tell ourselves, and we tell ourselves in church, we say things like this. Love means never having to say you're sorry. We say things, we try to rationalize again in a broken world with broken logic. You know, forgiving is forgetting. Forgiving is forgetting. But Leviticus says, sorry, that worldly philosophy ain't going to work in here. Leviticus says, it makes us face the nagging burden of guilt that remains when something between me and my neighbor is lost. You know what I'm talking about. You may be feeling it right now. There may be someone or some community coming to your mind, that nagging burden of guilt that remains when something between me and my neighbor is lost. It may be unintentional. We didn't know it. We didn't mean to do it. But when we know the right thing to do and don't do it, whenever it is, there is always this sense of loss. And you know what that sense of loss is? It's that sense of us lessening as individuals as an, and as a community of being less than who God redeemed us to be. And it just nags and it eats away at us. The definition of sin in Leviticus blows away the platitudes we throw around. Love doesn't mean never having to say you're sorry. Leviticus says there's no real love without accountability. There's no real love without justice. There's no real love without recognizing that it's not just about what's good for me. Real love is about what's good for you. Leviticus says ignorance isn't bliss. Forgiving isn't forgetting. Forgiving is coming clean. Pay attention to that, by the way. I don't know if you caught it when Linda read it, but if you, if you have your Bibles up and notice something, interesting in language in Leviticus, it's not simply in Leviticus that we need forgiveness. It's also that we need cleansing. And the blood that we see in Leviticus, the blood that makes us go, oh, Gosh, bleh. the blood we see in Leviticus reinforces the cost of sin. That there is a cost either way. There's a cost either way. That there's either the cost of confessing our sinfulness before God and others. There's a cost to coming clean, getting cleansed and receiving forgiveness. Or there is a cost of the increasing contamination, the harm that comes from the lack of reconciliation, the continuation and festering of the sin, the extension of the pain. There is a cost. Which cost do we want to pay? Which cost do we want to deal with? <laughs> I told you this wasn't going to get better. I mean, you read through the, the Bible on your own. I'm with you here. You read through the Bible on your own. You encounter all these different ways that we might go wrong and know about it. And then you get to Leviticus and you have all this talk about unintentional sin and communal responsibility. I'm not alone in thinking right now, how am I supposed to do anything about this? Where, where, is this, where, where are you leaving me today, Pastor Chris, besides being severely depressed? How can I fix this? That's the whole point. You can't. I can't. Collectively, we can't. It's an impossible task, but what you're hearing this morning is not all fire and brimstone. Yes, our eyes are open. Maybe for some of us, our hearts are broken. Our souls convicted by God's word through Leviticus, but that word through Leviticus is still a word of grace. The presumption of our need in Leviticus leads to the provision of God's response. 
God says, if the people sin, if they wish to make an offering, speak to the Israelites and say to them, God initiates a remedy, and this remedy is given to everyone. Here's what you can do. This means of grace, this means of approach and focus. There's two offerings that we have here. The purification offering, just dealing with the idea that sin messes things up, and then the reparation offering, the guilt offering, realizing that sometimes things get taken that have to be replaced, that something is lost and there needs to be a, a giving back. Leviticus, in the midst of the quicksand we find ourselves in, where we've fallen and we can't get up, the tangled web we weave, shows us the way. Confess your sin and make it right. Repent, turn around, live differently, restore what's missing, reconcile. It's the right thing to do. And that restitution that you see in, in Leviticus is so crucial in repentance that giving back, replacing, because it's not just about repaying the victim, it displays our willingness, our sincerity, our genuineness to actually enter into the pain of another person, the loss of another person. And honestly, that is more important than what we bring. But like I said, the great irony is that while Leviticus offers us a word of grace this morning, as the news is getting better for us, we need to hear this, church. The great remedy that Leviticus gives us is a remedy that practically in our lives, and I'm talking to the church now, we rarely take. We rarely take. We don't take it. And I'm not talking about sacrificing a couple of pigeons or a bull. I'm not saying that our problem is we're not sacrificing enough animals. I'm talking about we're not using the remedy that is the modern equivalent of what we see here in Leviticus. And that modern equivalent is not sacrificing animals. It's sacrificing ourselves. It's publicly confessing our sins and making things right. And we all have our reasons. We're busy, got stuff going on. We minimize the effects of our actions. Oh, it's not that big a deal. We have our own rationalizations of why it's not this or we'll make it up on the other side. And we just don't make things right with God and with our neighbor. It takes too much time. It takes too much courage to do it. Beloved, we need to hear this. Genuine remorse and genuine apologies are difficult things, especially for sinful people. We are known as a church, as the group that when it comes to sin, goes outside to the world and points our finger and tells the people what's wrong with them, why they're sinners and why we're not. We're the people that go out and tell people what's wrong with their lives and why they need Jesus like we have Jesus. And Leviticus says, that's not our witness. Our witness is instead to go out and say, look at what's in my life. Look at how broken I am. Look at how much I mess up. And look at the grace of this God who picks me up, who cleans me up, who empowers me. Beloved, that's a compelling witness. You all tell everybody how great it is to come to grace, and I guarantee you, you tell them all kinds of positive things, which I hope are true. But next time, tell them some of the things that aren't so great about grace. Well, they might not come. You know what? I'll bet they'll come because it's pretty much like the life they're living right now. The reality is we're not perfect. The reality is we can't be perfect. <laughs> we have this tendency in the church to write off this whole system of sacrificial sins, the sacrificial slaughterhouse, as primitive, revolting. I had somebody email me this week and said, why are we going through this barbaric and nauseating book? No, 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 no. I, I bring it up because that person's exactly right. Let me just say right now, out loud, Leviticus is primitive, it is revolting, it is barbaric, and it is nauseating. It makes me want to throw up. But what we miss in Leviticus is the reason why it is so revolting, barbaric, and nauseating is because human sin is so revolting, barbaric, and nauseating, and toxic to our lives and our community, and therefore to God. 
The stench that we don't like is not the sacrifices. It's the lack of sacrifice in our own life, the lack of embracing the sacrifice given for our life. And just to blow this home as we close out this morning, all we've talked about this morning is the unintentional stuff. That's all we talked about. You remember all that stuff that we, at the beginning, the intentional things that we said, okay, we'll agree that that's sin. Remember all the willful, purposeful stuff that we said, okay, we'll agree that that's wrong. Get ready for this. Leviticus has nothing to say about this kind of sin. Leviticus has nothing to say about this kind of sin that most of us commit. The willful, rebellious acts of disobedience. In fact, it's, this, this kind of sin isn't even addressed until Numbers. And if you were to turn to Numbers, the news isn't good. Listen to what Numbers says. Numbers, the book of Numbers says that those who sin deliberately, for anyone who sins deliberately or intentionally, there is no means of reconciliation. That person is to be cast out. That person is to be completely cut off and to suffer the consequences of their guilt. What I'm bringing home to you, which maybe you never heard before or didn't realize, is that as valuable as Leviticus is for us, the Old Testament sacrificial system has no provision for the forgiving of intentional sins. The assumption is, is that we're unintentionally wronging each other and wronging God. You can sacrifice a herd of bulls or a thousand flocks of goat and never squeeze a drop of mercy out of the whole bloody mess. And if you think I'm making this up, we can go to the New Testament where the writer to the letter of the Hebrews puts it this way. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer is basically saying that if this whole thing could have covered the huge issue of sin, wouldn't they have just eventually stopped the sacrifices? I mean, wouldn't, you, couldn't you just, wouldn't it have been a stopping point? And what's being drawn out is the sacrifices back then, they persisted, but they were always a stopgap. They were always a band-aid. They were always meant to point out the real problem, providing a temporary means of survival, but always underscoring how deep, how significant, and how invasive this problem of sin is. And how does this relate to worship? Our vocabulary, because here's the deal. For worship, the clarity of sin reveals the wonder of grace. The more clear we are about what sin is and we're allowed to be clear, the more we can appreciate what, what grace is. What brings us here is not, is not just that we are a forgiven people or not just that we love Jesus or that we're, you know, we get happy clappy. What brings us here is we come in and we acknowledge we are a broken people who are a part of a broken creation. And when we come in here and we hide from each other and we're not honest about that and we don't want to talk about that and we don't like that stuff, understand this church, we're no different than anyone else out there. In fact, we're worse because at least they're being honest about it. In here, we're being dishonest, not only to each other, but before God. This is the place where we come because we acknowledge that we are part of a broken creation. We are a broken people. We come to every Sunday, we gather in this place, we gather in our homes because we realize there is no way for us to exist without sinning. There is no way for us to be perfect. We gather because we all wanna declare, and I think we need t-shirts, we are poster children for grace. We need it, and we need it bad. We need it, and we need it bad. And the beauty is, is that, with that when we come into worship with our lives that way, with our just, with nothing, 
but other than our need for grace, that's when the gospel comes in. Something had to give, and when we're willing to admit that something has to give, God gives. God gave. God so loved the world that he gave his only son as the sufficient sacrifice that he would, that's the thing. Jesus doesn't just forgive the unintentional sins, but the intentional sins of our lives, the deliberate things we do as well as the things that we do by mistake. Hear this. Bring it all together. We are responsible for the sins of the community, and that's hard for us to embrace, but in Christ we are also saved by the redemption of the community. At times we sin through no fault of our own, and that doesn't seem right. It's not my fault. I didn't know. And it's wrong, and we're responsible, and that doesn't seem right. But at the same time, while we are sinning through no fault of our own, by grace we are saved by no merit of our own. They go together. You want to say, you know what, I'm not responsible for stuff that I don't know about. Well, guess what? You don't even know what grace is. You have nothing to do with it. Then it doesn't belong to you. It's a both and. Beloved, we look back at this book and the enormous mass of cattle, blood, and guts sacrificed throughout the centuries merely hinted at the even more enormous work of God himself. What he would do to save our souls and change our lives. Because in and through Christ, beloved, we have the means not only for being forgiven, but for cleansing the stains and the pain that lingers from our sins. We have the means of removing the guilt and the shame that isn't healthy for us, but we can't just simply remove by forgetting or denying. We have the means of being reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. The clarity of sin, seeing sin for what it is, reveals the wonders of grace. And that's why our Father, when he says to us, dude, you, clean out the closet of your life. You're coming in here. Stop sweeping all your junk under the rug of your past. His call for us to do that comes with an invitation to get purified, to get cleansed, to be reconciled, to be free of our burdens. Beloved, how many of us are coming into worship like that? How many of us are coming in here with our neat and tidy lives? How many of us are coming in here with the stuff that we're willing to give to God and the stuff that we don't think we can give to God and the stuff that we try to forget about? God wants it all. Because worship, I said it last week, I'm going to say it 5,000 times, worship is about living a saved life. Facing our sins, all of them, isn't about heaping guilt and shame upon ourselves. We don't say the confession in church because we want to make everybody feel guilty and shameful or because we think that Jesus isn't enough or because we want to... We, we publicly confess our sins because that's how we remember and we are a forgetful people. That's how we realize God's mercy. That's how we embrace God's grace. And for those of you who don't like the responsive prayers, get over yourself. Let me tell you why the responsive prayers are good. And I'm fine with spontaneous prayers. You know why responsive prayers are good? I don't care how holy and righteous you think you are. There is stuff that when you get up here that, yes, you, the Spirit may convict you, you won't say out loud. There is stuff that we gravitate towards and stuff that we shy away from. And the responsive prayers, I'm going to tell you, it's harder to read those words sometimes. And the number one thing I hear is, well, I don't agree with those words. Who gives a rip if you agree with those words? <laughs> if you heard this message, it doesn't matter whether you agree. You're guilty. We're in this together. And you need to say it out loud. Not just because you're guilty of it, but because you're part of a community. And your burdens are our burdens. And our burdens are your burdens. And if you're not embracing that, you're not embracing this God. You're not embracing his grace. Here's the, here's the thing. Guilt and shame is not what brings us here. Mercy and grace 
that comes from coming clean, mercy and grace that comes from making amends, mercy and grace, that's what motivates this work of reconciliation we're called to. The church is stagnant. The church is dead right now. The church is not moving because we are so busy not wanting to deal with our own sins, but we're so preoccupied with pointing out the sins of everybody out there. And the reality is, is what we have to do is we have to be willing to come clean first with each other and then come clean with the world. And our desire to come clean, our desire to make amends, our desire to confess on behalf of the church, that is the means by which God will bring the work of reconciliation that he wants to have done. And yet I encounter countless numbers of Christians who are more defensive than they are confessional. Who are looking for a fight rather than to sit down and say, we are horrible. We do not represent Jesus well. We've got this wrong. We say we've got a lot right, but we've got a lot wrong. And you know what? We're not going to keep telling you about all the stuff we have right. We're going to point to all the things we have wrong. And you know why we're going to do it? Because that's going to point you to Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about grace. In Jesus Christ, we have been made right with God, and we are called by God to make the world right. Beloved, Sin doesn't have to be a dirty word. Sin can be more than a label. Acknowledging sin, facing sin, wrestling with sin together, not us versus them, leads us to Christ. It unifies us through the only thing that unifies us besides our sin, which is grace. And it turns, that's what turns our lives into lives of worship. It's not the songs, it's not the prayers. It's giving our lives over to God completely. To close this out, we're going to do something a little different. I moved the prayer of confession to this part of the service because to me, to do it later or afterwards, I wanted you to, to in tandem to hear this. And it's a responsive prayer, <laughs> meaning it's written out. And for those of you who, again, struggle with this, and I watch you, I see you, I see the people who don't say the prayer, by the way who sit there. And maybe you're saying it in your head. Okay, all right, fine. Pay attention to the words. And stop thinking about whether the words apply to you. And instead, just surrender and submit to God the fact that we're in this together. I invite you to join in as you're prompted. Loving and merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We are truly sorry not only for our intentional disobedience, for the damage we've inflicted that we can see, we also seek forgiveness for all the mistakes, the slights, the snubs, the rejections, the hurts, and the transgressions that we never intended and didn't even realize we were a part of. We recognize how blind we can be when it comes not just to the log in our own eye, but our shared guilt as a community. Therefore, we do not merely confess our own personal sins. We also humbly repent of our collective sin as your people. So examine us and know our hearts, O oh God. Test us and know our thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way that leads to eternal life, the truth and the life of your son, Jesus Christ. I invite you to take a moment for silent confession.
O Lord, you have searched us and know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up. You discern our thoughts from far away. You search out our paths and are lying down and are acquainted with all our ways. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is so high that we cannot attain it. But since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we hold fast to our confession. We therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In Christ, we are a forgiven people. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Amen.